Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Good evening. Well, we want to start tonight and get right into it. So uh, let me tell you our agenda for the evening. Rather than starting out as a typical church service with music and those kinds of things and then a speaker, since we have Joel here for a limited period of time, we thought what we would do is use the entire evening. So Joel will uh, speak to us for the first hour. Then we're going to have a chance to have question and answer. So you might have questions for Joel, and he'd love to address those questions. So after an hour, we'll break for, uh, not break, we'll go right into a 30-minute Q&A session. And after that, if you'd like, we have many of Joel's books in the foyer, although I think we're going to sell out of them tonight. So get one quickly, and Joel will be in the foyer to uh, sign those books, if you'd like. Um, I'd like to welcome our extended audience, and what I mean by that is we have this broadcast on the radio, but also on the Internet, and I know that there are some listening tonight from Jerusalem. They're watching this live on the Internet, and some that are watching from the embassy in Baghdad in Iraq. So would you please welcome them? Now, Joel's teaching will be available tonight immediately after in the resource room, which is over your shoulder, over your left shoulder in that corner is a resource room. So if you'd like to get a copy of it, uh, it will be available. Also, it will be archived on the Internet. So uh, if you want to go back to it and see it uh, uh, on that uh, screen, you're welcome to do that as well as podcast. Now, let me tell you about Joel, if you don't already know. Uh, He's written some very riveting books, and I've only gotten through a couple of them. Joel Rosenberg is the New York Times best-selling author of The Last Jihad, a political thriller. It was published in November of 2002 and hit the New York Times list for 11 weeks in a row. Rush Limbaugh called The Last Jihad a must-read, as he would say, that absolutely crackles with high energy and a chilling premise. Sean Hannity called it the breakout novel of the year. Other books that Joel has written include The Ezekiel Option and this newest one that's excellent called Epicenter. Uh, Joel, as obviously noted, is a writer and a communications strategist. He has also worked with some of the world's most influential and provocative leaders in business, politics, the media, including Steve Forbes, Rush Limbaugh, Bill Bennett, and former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, would you please give a warm welcome for Joel Rosenberg. Good evening. Well, thank you so much, Skip, and uh, I appreciate this uh, warm welcome. Uh, God bless you. God bless you for what you're doing here in the Albuquerque area to reach your neighbors and your friends uh, with the love of Jesus Christ and for the impact that you're having nationally as well as around the world. And uh, shalom to our uh, friends visiting from Israel and assalamu alaikum from those who are uh, in the embassy in Baghdad, although they're probably all Americans. So uh, uh, God bless you guys for what you're doing to keep our country safe and to advance freedom on the front lines. Amen. 
We are gathered at a time of uh, great peril for our country, uh, for our values, uh, for uh, the security of the world as we have known it for some time now. We, we face a situation in which North Korea has tested a nuclear weapon. They say they're going to test more. A top North Korean general told ABC News recently that war between the United States and North Korea is inevitable. The president of Iran, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, I want you to say that five times quickly with me. No, I'm just kidding. You can just say Ahmed genocide because that sort of captures a sense of where he seems to be taking uh, the Iranian people. He, when, he was, uh, when he came to office last year, in the summer of last year, Ahmadinejad, this president of Iran, began telling people in Iran that the end of the world was just two or three years away. And that the way to hasten the coming of the Islamic Messiah, known as the 12th Imam or the Mahdi, the way to hasten the, the arrival, the, the, the emergence, the appearance of this 12th Imam, is to launch a global jihad, to annihilate Israel, whom he calls the little Satan, and to annihilate the United States, whom he calls the great Satan. Iran, of course, as you know, is feverishly trying to build, buy, or steal nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea and Iran are working hand-in-glove on their ballistic missile program, and we believe also on their nuclear program. So you've got a very dangerous situation in which the nuclear genie is about to be out of the bottle in, in, in two dangerous parts of the world. As I write about in Epicenter, uh, uh, U.S. intelligence believes that both Iran and North Korea have tested firing missiles off the back of commercial container ships where you could have a situation in which a, a, a commercial container ship coming in off of you know the port of Long Beach for example or Washington DC in, in the uh, port of Baltimore could have missiles uh, with nuclear warheads from Iran or North Korea at some point in the not too distant future and fire those into those major cities New York Washington Los Angeles Seattle wherever that may be and we would have about five or six minutes Warning, except we don't have a ballistic missile defense program here on the homeland. We don't expect uh, short-range ballistic missiles from these countries, but they could be launched off the back of a ship, a ship bringing you know, cars from, uh, from Japan or, 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 or toys from China or what have you. We track Russian nuclear submarines. We don't track commercial container ships, all the thousands of them that are coming. But this is the world that we live in now. We watch every night on the news as... Uh, radical jihadist insurgents are trying to overthrow the first democratically elected government of Iraq. We are living at a point in which the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, said that we are seeing the early stages of World War III. Uh, senator John McCain, the Arizona senator, your neighbor, he, uh, he was on NBC's Meet the Press earlier this year, and he said, if Iran gets nuclear weapons... He said, quote, I think we could see Armageddon, unquote. Now, Senator McCain is known for a lot of things, obviously as a war hero, as a man of straight talk. He's not a guy known for citing the book of Revelation on national television when it comes to foreign policy crises in the Middle East. But these are the days that we're living in right now. Now, as Skip said, I, you know, I've written these, a, a series of these novels uh, in The Last Jihad, The Last Days, The Ezekiel Option, now recently The Copper Scroll. 
uh, each have had a, they all deal with the Middle East and things that could happen in the Middle East. The strange thing is that a, a number of the elements in the in books that are fictional have seemed to come true. And we're going to talk about that uh, in, in a moment. But this is what's causing a lot of people to uh, uh, to be curious about who I am and what do I believe and and do I believe that we are living in the last days. Uh, the most recent novel, The Copper Scroll, uh, came out August 1st. A few weeks before that, the publicist for Tyndale, the publishing house that I work with, they, uh, she sent out a press release saying, author warns that battle for control of Jerusalem could spark a new Middle East war. Eight or nine days after the press release went out, Hezbollah launched a, uh, an attack against Israel that ended up with 4,000 rockets and missiles landing on Israel. So this set into motion a lot of interest, uh, both in the novels and, more importantly, what's going on in the Middle East. And when I tell people that I, I base these novels on Bible prophecy, people get a little curious. Well, what, what, does, what does this mean? You, you think that actually the Bible speaks to anything going on in our world today, but particularly events that are going on in the Middle East? I was on, I've been, so I've been on over 200 radio and television shows just since uh, that war began at the end of July. And uh, I was on a, a CNN uh, not long ago, and uh, the, the host said, the anchor said, Joel, you know, you've, you've written these novels. What, what, do you really believe that we are living in what the Bible calls the last days? You know, what are the signs we're supposed to be watching for? What, what, uh, how close are we? Now, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this isn't the 700 Club. Uh, this is CNN. <laughs> what are they doing talking to me about the last days? And uh, I was on uh, Alan Combs' radio show uh, not long ago. And uh, Alan Combs, as you know, uh, is the, uh, the, the partner with Sean Hannity on the, uh, the Hannity and Combs television show on Fox. So he has his own radio show afterwards, and Alan's a nice guy. I, I've been on the, the TV show before, but this was a radio show, and he had me on. And I knew, uh, based, he was having me on because the Washington Post had done a story about how I had been invited to speak at the White House on Are We Living in the Last Days? And they wanted to know if I was some sort of kook that was sort of, you know, feeding all these ideas to the president. The president wasn't in the room, so just FYI on that. But, but he wanted to, I knew he was going to have some fun with this and wanted to mock me. But I thought, you know, I like Alan. I'll be happy to stay up till 1130 at night to, to be on his show. So long story short, he gets me on the show and he says, now, Joel, you really, you know, you're a Jewish person who believes in Jesus. Do you really think that Jesus is coming back? I said, yes, Alan, absolutely I do. That's what the Bible says, and I believe it. So when do you think it's going to happen? I said, well, I have no idea. I mean, uh, uh, Matthew 24, we say, the Bible tells us, Jesus says, I'm not going to give you the day or the hour. He goes, well, yes, but you, you have some sense. You're, you know, U.S. News and World Report calls you the modern Nostradamus, so you probably have some inside information, <laughs> right? And I'm saying to them, you know, him, I'm, you know, I'm not Nostradamus. I, I'm not a psychic. I'm not a clairvoyant. I don't call Miss Cleo in the middle of the night to get my plot ideas, okay? <laughs> and he said, yeah, but, you, but I, have, I, bet you, I bet you have some sense. Just between you and me, when do you, you think Jesus is coming back imminently? When do you, when do you think it's going to be? I said, I, I really don't know. And he was not satisfied with this answer. He said, but it's soon, right? So, like, should I buy green bananas? <laughs> should I, get my, should I bo even bother to pick up my uh, dry cleaning? I mean, is it that close? What, what should I do, Joel? And he kept pushing this point, And I finally said, you know, Alan, when you ask me what you should do, I, I think you need to accept Jesus as your Messiah. That's, that's, that's what you need to do. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, that wasn't his reaction. Uh, 
he, uh, he, he kind of pulled back and said, you've got to be kidding me. You're trying to convert me to Jesus on my own radio show? I, I said, well, I'm just trying to answer your question. He said, well, I didn't ask you to come here and convert me on my show. He, was, he seemed quite offended. I said, Alan, think about what did you just ask me? You said, what should I do, Joel? Uh, should I buy green bananas? Should I get my dry cleaning? Uh, what should I do, Joel? That was your question, right? He said, yeah. I said, well, I'm just telling you, given what's going on in our world right now, uh, yes, I believe we are living in the last days. And I think now is the time to, uh, to give your heart to, to the Messiah who loves you and gave himself for you. So this is the question that people are asking, and, uh, and this is the question we want to address tonight. Are we living in the last days? And if so, so what? You know, what does that mean for you in Albuquerque? What does this mean for my wife and kids and I in Washington, D.C.? What does this mean uh, for you in Jerusalem or in Baghdad, uh, you know, the epicenter of our, our attention right now, being in the Middle East? So let's talk about this. Now, we're going to um, get into this in a moment. I want to give you a little bit of background um, about who I am and, and, and how I got into writing these novels to put some context in this. But I understand you guys have been doing a rather extensive series on Matthew chapter 24. So I feel confident that I don't have to recap too much, but I want to make a couple key points on Matthew 24. And the key here is that Jesus himself was asked this critical question, when are you coming back and what are the things we should be watching for that are indicative that you're about to arrive? Now, Jesus could have given a very Don Rumsfeld answer. No comment. Next question. Right? But he didn't. He didn't. He spent an entire chapter, Matthew 24, Luke 21, also in the gospel according to Mark. He spent time answering that question, giving us a sense of what we should be watching for. Now, as I said, uh, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, he says, I'm not going to throw the game for you. I'm not going to tell you the day or the hour. Jesus said, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And then he says, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Now, let me, I just need to make a parenthetical point here that my, my wife and I have four sons. And uh, we have Caleb, Jacob, and Jonah. And then two years ago, we had Noah. And uh, because Jesus said he's not coming back again until the days of Noah. We thought if we're holding him back in any way, you know. So I can report that Noah is here. He's two and a half. He's been to Israel already. And we're good to go. We are living in the days of Noah. Okay, so just FYI on that. (laughs) Well, Jesus is saying, look, I'm not going to throw the game for you. But I will give you a sense of what to be looking for. Because day or hour is a very narrow period of time, right? So what does he say? He says you'll be looking for wars and rumors of wars and, and nations rising against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms and uh, you know, the persecution of the believers and famine and earthquake and disease and, and the spread of the gospel to every person on the face of the planet. Uh, that This gospel, that this good news that Jesus came to earth and he died on the cross and he rose on the third day in order to open a door for us to invite us into the family of God. That this is great news and this is the news that has to get spread to every person on the face of the planet. And that will happen, Jesus said, and you'll see that happening in the last days. There'll be the rise of false messiahs and false prophets as well. But, But what's interesting is Jesus talks about the parable of the fig tree in verse 32. He says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So too, so you too, when you see all these things, 
recognize that he is near, right at the door. Now, what is the parable of the fig tree? Well, in my understanding, as I study scripture, uh, my eyes turn to Jeremiah chapter 24, which I would encourage you in your own private Bible study to spend some time in Jeremiah 24, where God lays out a fascinating word picture, a parable for the Hebrew prophet Jeremiah. And he he sets two baskets, baskets in front of Jeremiah, and he says, these are both baskets filled with figs. Uh, One basket is filled with good figs. The other basket is filled with bad figs. And just so that Jeremiah didn't miss the point, he said the the good figs are the children of Israel, the Jewish people. And these are the people who are following the Lord. The bad figs are also the children of Israel, he said, uh, the Jewish people, those who, however, who are not following the Lord. Two baskets, both figs, both the children of Israel, but some are following the Lord and some are not. And I believe this is what Jesus is referring to when he talks about the parable of the fig tree. And he said, when Israel is reborn as a country in the distant future, and when Jews start to pour back into the Holy Land after centuries of exile and rebuild the ancient ruins and and make the deserts bloom, when some are following the Lord and some are not following the Lord, this is your sign. When you match this with all these other things going on, you will know that I am near, that I'm right at the door. Now, I got to tell you, uh, I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. And my father was raised Orthodox Jewish in Brooklyn. His family as Orthodox Jews escaped out of Russia around 1907 uh, when the Tsar was killing every Jew he could find. Now, if you were an Orthodox Jew in anti-Semitic, fascist, Tsarist Russia in the early part of the 1900s, you basically had two options. You could fiddle on the roof... Or you could try to get out. Now, tragically, not a lot of people were able, not enough were able to get out. But by God's grace, God, uh, my family hid in a hay wagon that was crossing a border out of Russia. Tsarist soldiers took their swords and plunged them into the hay to see if anyone was hiding in there. By the grace of God, no one was injured. No one sneezed. None of the children, of which there were quite a few in there, said, Are we there yet? I got to go to the bathroom. They got out. And having gotten out of anti-Semitic, fascist, czarist Russia, they didn't go, whoo, let's settle in Poland or Austria or Germany, where many tragically did. Uh, They continued to make their way across the continent of Europe. And by God's grace, they got to Ellis Island. And like any good Jewish family, they set up shop in Brooklyn, which is where my father was raised. Now, my father, so, so these passages are real to me. I mean, this idea of, uh, you know, Matthew 23, 39, the verse right before this whole series goes into motion, Jesus tells the Jewish people, Behold, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until a whole lot of Jewish people believe that Jesus is the Messiah and get excited about his return, he says, I ain't coming. So you're going to want to be watching for a lot of Jewish people to come and believe in Jesus. And my father, when, uh, uh, when he became a believer in 1973, uh, he thought he was, the, he was the first Jewish person since the Apostle Paul who'd ever become a believer in Jesus. <laughs> he literally thought it went Jesus, Peter, Paul, 2,000 years, Len Rosenberg. <laughs> He'd never met a Jewish person who believed in Jesus. Uh, and, and what's interesting is he got, um, so he was raised Orthodox, but by the mid-60s, he was an agnostic. Uh, by 65, he met and married my 
uh, the person would be my mother. I was born in 67. They were married in 65. Uh, but she was not Jewish. She was uh, a daughter of the American Revolution, English, Methodist, WASP, agnostic. <laughs> and uh, this was an Annie Hall marriage, if there ever was one. Um, and, but they were really curious. Uh, after they had me in 67, they, they, they started to read the Quran and the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible. And they, they would take long walks and they would ask their friends, do you know if there's a God and do you know how to find them? Because we're kind of curious and we don't know. They happened to visit a church in 1973 in which uh, the pastor wasn't even there that weekend. But there were some young couples explaining how to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, with God through Jesus Christ. And my mother heard for the first time Jesus' words in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, Jew, like my father, or Gentile, like my mother, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish, die eternally separated from God forever and ever and ever and ever, but shall have eternal life. My mother never remembers having heard that in the church where she grew up. And when she heard John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father except through me. She didn't know that he was the way. And as, as, as these young couples began to describe how Christ had transformed their lives, she was convinced this was what they were looking for. This was true. And when there was an invitation to receive Christ at the end of that service, she went forward and, and, and prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Assuming that my father was right behind her. And he wasn't. Not yet. Uh, he said, you know, look, honey, uh, you know, I'm not sure what I believe, but one thing sort of got drilled into us in, on the streets of Brooklyn, Jesus ain't it, okay? So I don't know where, you know, what I think about this. But to his credit, he was willing to go to a, a Bible study with some young couples um, in which they were studying the gospel according to Luke. And it was interesting because, you know, you don't have to spend too much time in the gospels. And before you realize, Jesus is describing himself as the Messiah, and his followers are realizing, oh, this is the Messiah. And people are shouting out, you're the Messiah. And demons are saying, hey, this is the Holy One of God. And it became clear that, that either Jesus was the Messiah or he wasn't. I mean, it's, you know, it didn't take rocket science. Either he is or he isn't. Now, if, he, if Jesus is the Messiah, my father was faced with a, a serious crisis. We all are. What does that mean? Are we going to really follow Jesus? But the other issue was, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, my father said, well, did he think that he was and he, and, and, and he was just delusional? Or did he know that he wasn't and he was just lying? Those are really the only options. Either Jesus is, is a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And as the six months, months went by and my father studied the life of Jesus week after week and studied the life of Jesus... And the teachings of Jesus, and the miracles of Jesus, and the compassion of Jesus, and the love of Jesus, even for his enemies. My father couldn't conclude, in good conscience, that Jesus was either a liar or a lunatic. And he came home after six months and said, I believe Jesus is the Lord, and I gave my life to him today. Which was very exciting for them. Now, my sister and I started getting dragged off to church, uh, shoved into Sunday school classes, uh, I, you know, I was in the Sunday school class. I didn't know what, I had no idea where we were, what we were doing. Uh, you know, I'm in there with the pastor's son and the elder's daughters and they already know everything. And I, you know, it, I don't know if you force your kids to, to, I mean, you know, encourage your kids to, 
do these sword drills, right? Where you say, ready, you know, John 3.16. And then you got, you know, I'm, they say that. I'm like looking around. Who's John? I just got into this class. I don't remember any name being John. Where, where, what is happening here? My parents gave me a, a New Testament with Psalms and Proverbs in the back. And I really wanted that wiffle ball set that if you won the sword drill, then you'd get the set. And I never, I mean, I couldn't even get my hand up fast enough. I didn't know which way was up. One day... They say, ready, what's the last book of the Bible? And I shot my hand up, having flipped through real quick. I said, oh, 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 that one I know. And everyone in the class was completely shocked. Rosenberg's got his hand up. What's this? You know. So they said, okay, well, what's the last book of the Bible? I said, Proverbs. <laughs> well, that's what they, that was their reaction. I said, what are you people talking about? It's right here. Come on, black and white, Proverbs. No, no, it didn't work. So I didn't get the wiffle ball set. And then if... if if, if it were bad enough to be forced to go uh, to, uh, to Sunday school class, then came summer with summer uh, vacation Bible school. Now, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I am not a fan of singing. You know, God bless people who have this gift and skill and even desire. I'm not one of them. And I hate crafts. Can I just be honest with you? Uh, the idea of gluing elbow macaroni to burlap to write Jesus loves me. No, I, I'm sorry. That's completely ridiculous. But that's just me. I'm just saying. By the grace of God, I amazingly came to know Jesus as the Messiah myself. Um, but it was, a, it was a, quite a journey. And uh, uh, by the time I uh, met and married my wife, uh, we, we met in Campus Crusade for Christ at Syracuse and moved to Washington. Uh, I was now on a political tra- uh, trail. And my, my, but we were Jewish believers who were thinking, hmm, if, if people like my father are coming to know Jesus, and, and I'm coming to know Jesus, and we're starting to meet other Jewish believers in Jesus. Maybe we really are living in the last days, because something is, something is going on. We're, we're starting to meet a lot of these people. And I got interested in prophecies that might suggest how close we might be to the coming of, of the Lord. And so, but, but I was on a political track at this point, uh, working for these U.S. and Israeli leaders. And uh, let's not overstate it. I basically helped a lot of them lose uh, their elections. So, uh, have, you know, after I helped Steve Forbes lose his second presidential campaign, I, I came home and said, you know, kids, what are we going to do now? Let's go to Disney World, you know. So we took them down there to thank them for, you know, their patience as I'd been all over the country uh, uh, campaigning for a campaign that didn't really go where we wanted it to go. So it was now uh, January 2001, and I, you know, here I am. I'm a follower of Christ, and I've, and I've done 11 years of politics, and I don't really feel like there's a lot that's added up for that. I felt like the Lord had taken me to all those jobs, but I didn't understand how this all worked together for his good purposes. And so uh, one night I gathered my wife, and we had oh, three boys at the time, Caleb, Jacob, and Jonah. And I pulled, we pulled them together and got them ready for bed, and we we're have some prayer time. And I said, look, here's the deal. Daddy thinks I should, I'm thinking maybe I should get out of politics, you know, go through political detox, get clean, get out, uh, you know, and, and maybe write novels, uh, write some political thrillers, you know, kind of grab people with a, a Tom Clancy-esque novel and pull them in and raise the spiritual temperature as the novel goes on and maybe around three quarters of the way through into the novel when hopefully you can't put it down, you know, maybe one of the characters could share the gospel with another character. And my wife uh, and kids thought, well, that's a good idea. Does that keep you home more? And I said, yes, I, I think it will. And, uh, and my wife said, well, yeah, it might keep you home for a long time. So maybe, you know, don't give up the day job here. But, uh, uh, you know, but write a few chapters and see, let's see where this thing goes. But I said, well, okay, this is, the, this is really the heart of the matter. I said, because Daddy has two problems, kids. Uh, uh, Daddy wants to write this novel, but uh, Daddy doesn't know how to write a novel. 
Daddy has never written a novel. Uh, Daddy has never written fiction, except when I was ghostwriting for Rush Limbaugh, my liberal friend said I was writing fiction, but that, you know, that was different. <laughs> so, uh, so I don't know how to do this, and I don't have a story. So except for those two fairly critical points, this is the new family plan for 2001. So I said, here's what we're going to do, because they're looking at me like, all right, well then, you know, where are we headed with this? And I said, all right, here's the thing. Every night before we go to bed, let's pray Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me, says the Lord, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things that you do not know. I said, that's the perfect verse for Daddy. Daddy doesn't know how to write a novel, and Daddy doesn't have a story. But if this is really of the Lord, maybe, maybe the Lord will be merciful and give something to us and take our little loaves and fishes and, 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 and multiply it and bless people with it. Let's just see. Well, I began writing my first novel that month, January 2001, called The Last Jihad. The first page puts you inside the cockpit of a hijacked jet coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. This is nine months before September 11th. As the plot of The Last Jihad unfolds, uh, my fictional American president finds himself in a war with Saddam Hussein over terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. I was literally finishing that novel uh, in the townhouse where Lynn and I and the boys were living uh, at that time, 15 minutes away from Washington Dulles Airport, where at that moment, as I was finishing this book, Flight 77 was being hijacked, turned around, flown over our house and into the Pentagon. And we started hearing, of course, what was happening in New York and then, of course, what happened in Pennsylvania. And, and you know, none of us knew was there going to be a 912 and a 913 and a 914. And, you know, our city was under attack. Our country was under attack. When the last jihad came out the next year, the fall of 02, uh, you know, no one had ever heard of me and no one had ever heard of this book before. But as Skip said... It just exploded in interest. Well, exploded might not be the right term, but it, uh, you know, it, it, it hit number one on Amazon and it, uh, 11 weeks on the New York Times list. And people were interested, and I was invited on over 160 radio and television shows. And people would say, you know, how is it possible that you wrote a novel that basically predicted what happened and what is coming? You know, there's some differences in the book, but you basically have, have, have explained the trajectory of events. Well, how did you do that? And by the way, what do you think is going to happen next? And... Uh, and by the way, isn't your name Rosenberg? And I'd say yes. And they'd say, isn't that Jewish? And they'd say yes. I'd say yes. And, and, and they'd say, well, but you've got all these characters at the end of your novel. They're all talking about Jesus, aren't they? I said yes. Well, what is the deal with that? What are you, a born again or an evangelical of some sort? I said, I am. That's true. Well, how is that possible, they'd say. How can you be Jewish and believe in Jesus? And I, I'd say to these radio show hosts, well, you know, actually, that's an interesting story. I'm, sure not, I'm not sure you have time on your show to talk about it now, but uh, they said, oh, no, you know, it's one thing to have a guy who writes novels that come true on my show. It's another thing to meet a Jew who believes in Jesus. I never even heard of that. Why don't you just tell us your story? And I had the privilege of talking about my faith in Jesus as the Messiah with some 20 million people in less than 60 days. It was extraordinary what God was doing. And... This, I think, really has a lot to do with, with, with my wife and, and our kids praying on our knees every night. Call to me, and, answer, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things you do not know. Now, my uh, publisher came along and said, would, would you like to write another novel? And I said, mm, okay. You know, because it beat working, right? So I thought, you know, what am I going to do? Go back and help more candidates lose their elections? Uh, <laughs> 
So I wrote this novel called The Last Days, and uh, that begins with the death of Yasser Arafat and an American president pushing for peace and democracy in the Middle East. Thirteen months after the book came out, Arafat was dead. Two months after that, President Bush decided to make democracy in the Middle East the centerpiece of his second-term agenda. But I think the strangest thing about the last days was that the first pages put you inside a U.S. diplomatic convoy driving into Gaza as part of the peace process when it's suddenly attacked by a massive explosion. Six days before the last days hit bookstores in the fall of 2003, a U.S. diplomatic convoy driving into Gaza as part of the peace process was attacked by terrorists. And that's when U.S. News did that story, describing me as a modern Nostradamus. And, I, and now I'm on hundreds of shows saying, look, I'm not Nostradamus, as I said. And, and I had a Las Vegas radio station call me and say, you know, this is, this is uncanny how you're doing this. Would you like to come out and do a book signing here in Vegas and then help people with the blackjack tables? And I said, no, I, I, I think you're missing the whole point of this exercise. Uh, but thank you. I appreciate it. I didn't, I didn't go. But this has just sort of continued to happen. Just briefly, uh, the Ezekiel option is the third in the series. And it's, look, it's the same characters as the first two books, except for the ones that I kill off, uh, because I really don't know what I'm doing. So I, my theory is when in doubt, kill someone or blow something up. Fictionally, fictionally, but I'm just saying, you know. And let's not overstate it. You know, the Washington Post described uh, the last jihad as an act of terrorism against the reader's brain. So I don't want you to get your hopes up real high that these are the most, you know, amazing novels, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners or Dickens or something. But God is using them and they're drawing people and they're getting people curious. And this one is, you know, the same president's trying to make peace in the Middle East and all hell breaks loose. A dictator rises to power in Russia. Iran is feverishly trying to build, buy or steal nuclear weapons, and then Russia and Iran form a military alliance, a nuclear alliance uh, with Lebanon and Syria and a group of uh, other Middle Eastern countries to destroy Israel. Now, what's interesting about that one is that on page 358, in case you're interested, uh, uh, my, one of my fictional Islamic characters says, we're going to wipe Israel off the map. Now, five months after the novel was published, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad said, we're going to wipe Israel off the map. But he wasn't even the president of Iran when I wrote the Ezekiel Option in 2004. He became the president of Iran on, the, on June 24, 2005, the very day the Ezekiel Option was published. So that one really set into motion people going, all right, now come on. You know, th this one is the most explicit about the prophecies. And they're like, well, what are these prophecies? What are you talking about? You, you Walk us through this. So... I'd like to walk you through, uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, some of the key elements of this prophecy, what Bible scholars call the War of Gog and Magog. And uh, why don't we open up there, and, um, and we'll take a look in Ezekiel 38. Now, as you're flipping uh, in your Bibles to Ezekiel 38, let me say that Ezekiel 36 and 37 are where the famous prophecies, where, where the Lord says to Ezekiel that in the last days, Israel will be reborn as a country, that Jews will pour back into the land, the Holy Land, after centuries of exile and rebuild the ancient ruins and, and make the deserts bloom. And this, these two chapters have essentially come true in our lifetime, which raises an interesting question. If Ezekiel 36 and 37 have come true, isn't it remotely possible that Ezekiel 38 and 39 could come true in our lifetime? So what does the prophecy say? 
Ezekiel 38, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. You're thinking to yourself, what is he talking about? And I understand that. It gets a little, you have to do some historical detective work to decipher what these ancient names refer to. What do they correspond to in modern times? And I would just note that uh, the, the new book, the nonfiction book, Epicenter, uh, walks through this in, in a lot more detail with all the end notes and documentation so you can see uh, what I'm saying and what other experts over the, uh, well, experts have said over the years. Uh, and it, it also describes a little bit of how I came in more detail to write these other novels having taken these prophecies and backtracked a little bit and said, how would we get up to this prophecy? And that's really where we got um, those first two storylines. But as, but as I did the research for this, what was fascinating to me is that Gog is not likely a, a personal name. It's a title, like a pharaoh or a czar. Gog is going to be a, a political leader, a, a dictator. Uh, in, in verse uh, 10, he's described as developing an evil plan. This isn't going to be a good guy. This is going to be an evil uh, person. Uh, he's described as a prince. And he's from the land of Magog. And I know you're thinking, that's not helping me any. So uh, Magog. So we have to do some research and figure out where's the land of Magog. Well, if you study the, the writings of uh, the first century historian Flavius Josephus, uh, you find that uh, this is uh, that he described the people of Magog, the Magogites, as the people who settled north of the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, in what we now know as Russia and some of the former Soviet republics. As you study the scriptures on your own, and I would encourage you to spend some serious time in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you do not need to read Ezekiel Option or Epicenter. You know, just study the scriptures, and as you study them, you will find that uh, this coalition led by Gog is going to be coming from the uttermost parts of the north. Uh, some of your translations will say the furthermost parts of the north. And when you pull out a map and you look at Israel and you go due north as far as you can until you hit Santa Claus, you get to Russia, okay? The most important, powerful city due north of Jerusalem in the furthermost parts of the north is Moscow. And it's interesting because uh, this is, these are just some of the details that begin to give us clues that Russia is the lead country in this prophecy. Now, in, now the question is, who is working together with Russia in this anti-Israel coalition? And you'll see in verse 5, the first country mentioned is Persia. Now, this may be the, the, most, uh, the, the easiest to decipher because until 1935, Persia was the official legal name of Iran. Now, what's interesting about this, however, is that Russia and Iran have never had a military alliance in the 2,500 years plus since Ezekiel wrote the prophecy. It's never happened until now. In December of last year, Russia signed a $1 billion arms deal with Iran. Now, you have to put that in context. That was two months after Ahmadinejad gave the famous speech in which he said, we're going to wipe Israel off the map. In that same speech, he urged the Muslim world to envision a world without the United States. And he said, is this possible? A world without America and Zionism. And he said, it is when our holy hatred strikes like a wave. Two months later, Russian President Vladimir Putin says, great, give these guys a billion dollar arms deal. Now, Russia is not only selling arms to Iran, it's building nuclear facilities inside Iran. It's selling nuclear technology to Iran. 
It has trained over a thousand Iranian nuclear scientists. And it is running political interference for Iran at the United Nations to prevent us and our allies from trying to impose economic sanctions on Iran to try to slow down Ahmadinejad's feverish bid for nuclear weapons. Russia and Iran are starting to form a military alliance, and it's, it's, uh, I believe that Russia has joined the axis of evil. And this has implications. Now, let's continue. Uh, again, in verse 5, the next country mentioned in the coalition is Cush. Some of your Bibles say Ethiopia. It certainly includes uh, Ethiopia. This is the upper Nile region, but it's largely Sudan. And what's interesting about Sudan, of course, it's today it's a radical Islamic uh, regime uh, engaged in a genocide in the south, mostly against Christians, but also against Muslims. And, and this is a regime in Sudan that is closely allied with Iran and has been for a number of years now. And lo and behold, these two countries are sitting side by side in the scriptures. The next country is Put. Now, where do we put Put? Uh, Josephus says that uh, Put is ancient Libyos, uh, what we would call Libya. Now, ancient Libya was a larger geographic territory, we believe, than, than modern-day uh, Libya. So we're probably also talking about Algeria and uh, possibly Tunisia. Um, I don't think it extends as far as Morocco, but it could. And it doesn't include Egypt. Egypt is never mentioned in Ezekiel 38 or 39. And by the way, Egypt has a peace treaty today. Uh, they signed it in 79 with Israel. Uh, even though Israel, uh, Egypt was the lead in the wars against uh, Israel in 48, 56, 67, and 73, now there's a peace treaty. First time in human history in which uh, Egypt might not participate in the next war in the region if the next great war is the War of Gog and Magog. But in terms of uh, Algeria, for example, uh, where was Vladimir Putin earlier this year? He was in Algeria. Didn't get a lot of sightseeing done, but he did have time to sign a $7.5 billion arms deal with Algeria. Uh, the largest deal that, uh, arms deal that Moscow has signed since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, later that, uh, this year, uh, during the summer, Putin sent the deputy speaker of the Russian parliament, uh, an anti-Semitic fascist czar wannabe named Vladimir Zhirinovsky, to Libya to jumpstart uh, uh, the new talks to build a military relationship between Iran or uh, Libya and, uh, and Russia. Now, the next country that's mentioned there is Gomer. And I have to tell my boys, this is not where Gomer Pyle is from, okay? Uh, this is the, the country of Turkey. Uh, some Bible scholars believe the Gomerites spread north from Turkey into Germany, uh, possibly Austria, although Bible scholars disagree about this, so we don't know that for sure. And then Beth Togarma, the house of Togarma, which is the Turkic-speaking peoples that spread across from Turkey through Armenia and into Central Asia, uh, what we know today as the stands, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan. Now, we don't know that they're all going to be in this coalition, uh, but they could be. It talks about uh, Beth Togarma uh, uh, with all its troops. So we don't know exactly, but this is beginning to form a picture of mostly Islamic countries uh, that we now know in the, in the modern context that are going to oppose Israel. Uh, now here in verse 8 is where we pick up uh, the narrative of where this thing is going to go. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you, and this is you meaning uh, he's referring, God is referring to God, this Russian dictator. You will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. 
Now, the mountains, the most prominent mountains of Israel to the north, along the border with Syria, the Golan Heights, and Lebanon, and northern Jordan. Now, we can't say for certain from the scriptures if Lebanon and Syria and possibly Jordan are going to participate in the war against Israel, but certainly the troops are going to be coming from that direction. So whether they're overrun or whether they're active participants, uh, these, this is also going to be part of the picture. And, of course, if you looked at what's going on in recent months, if this war were to happen in our lifetime, in the near future even, it wouldn't be a stretch to picture Lebanon and Syria engaged in that war actively. Now, in chapter 38, verse 18, we get to the part of what, where this thing is, where the rubber meets the road. Because as you look through Ezekiel 38 and 39 on your own, you're, going to, you're not going to find any country that comes to Israel's aid when this war is about to happen. You're not going to find the EU coming to Israel's rescue. You're not going to find the UN coming to Israel's rescue. And you're not going to find the United States. Nobody comes to Israel's aid in this prophecy. You won't find that anywhere. What you do find is verse 18. One comes to Israel's aid, and it's the Lord God himself. It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. About halfway down in verse 20, it says, All the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. We don't know if that literally means it's, this is a global earthquake in which the, literally the whole world is physically shaking. It could be emotional, spiritual, financial, political, but it's not going to be good. Verse 22, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. Do you get the picture of what's going to happen here? This is the most horrifying, tragic day in human history to date. The tribulation will be worse, the book of Revelation describes, but, uh, but this is going to happen, we believe, before that tribulation or at the early stages of that tribulation. And it, it, what's so striking is how horrifying it's going to be. So many uh, enemy troops of Israel, uh, so many of Israel's enemies... Uh, their troops are going to be destroyed in such large numbers that in Ezekiel 39, it describes that it's going to take seven months to bury all the bodies. And it would take longer, the scriptures say, except that God is going to send the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field to eat most of the bodies. Yeah. This is, this is grim. Not since Charlton Heston stared down Yule Brenner in the, in the Ten Commandments have we seen God strike the enemies of Israel this way. And, of course, we have never seen it. But, you know, this is not only going to be a, a terrifying day of great judgment against the enemies of Israel. You know, God said in Genesis chapter 12, If you bless Israel, I will bless you. If you curse Israel, I will curse you. And God loves the people of Russia. And he loves the people of Iran and Sudan and Lebanon and Syria and Jordan. And, and he loves these people. He sent Jesus to die for these people. But there is a point at which when their governments and militaries curse Israel, they push God too far. And this is what we're seeing. But you know what? This is not only a day of great judgment. It's also a day of great mercy. 
chapter 39, verse 21. And I will set my glory among the nations, says the Lord, and all the nations will see that see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The next few verses talk about how the nations will begin to understand what's really happening, what's going on. In verse 29, uh, God says, I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. I believe this is what the, what the war of Gog and Magog is going to set into motion is the greatest spiritual awakening in human history. Did you catch verse 21 when he said, all the nations of the earth will see, not hear, see my glory, God says. Now, when, when, when the Ten Commandments, uh, you, know, uh, when that, you know, when the, uh, the plagues of Egypt happened and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and all that, uh, you know, the nations of, uh, that surrounded Israel and, and Egypt heard of what God had done. Rahab the prostitute says to the Israeli spies, hey, we have heard about your God and we're all freaked out about it. That's my own personal translation, but you know, that's basically the gist of it. But this is not, we're not going to all hear about it. We're going to see it. And you know, we live in the first generation in human history where because of the, the, uh, the miracle of global satellite television technology as well as web technology, the whole world is going to be able to watch the hand of God move to defend his people. And the Bible says that he's, God's going to pour out his spirit, particularly on the house of Israel. When people see the glory of God and when God pours out his spirit, we're going to see millions, possibly tens of millions, possibly hundreds of millions of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe it's going to be the greatest spiritual awakening in human history. And well, does that mean everybody's going to come to Jesus? No. Uh, Judas spent three years with a personification of truth on earth, and it didn't make a dent. But many people will come to Christ. Why? Because that's the Holy Spirit's job, to open our eyes and open our hearts and help us to see that Jesus is the Messiah. This is tremendous. And it, and it raises these so-what questions for me and my wife and my boys, and I want to raise some for you tonight. Given the context of what we're talking about, that we are living in the last days, that we're seeing all those signs of Matthew 24 play themselves out as we speak, and given the convergence of these events, uh, the first question is, are we going to see this happen right in our lifetime? Are the events I've just described geopolitically, is that evidence that the war of Gog and Magog is happening or about to happen soon? And I think the answer is that we can't say that yet. To be very candid, I don't think we have enough information to, to draw that conclusion. It's certainly intriguing as Russia and Iran form this alliance for the first time since the prophecy was written. As we see these other events happen, they're certainly consistent with the events that would have to happen for this prophecy to come true. I'm not sure if you're aware that Russia recently sent uh, military forces into Lebanon to be working side by side with the UN peacekeeping forces. And they're planning to send more in the next few weeks. I'm not sure if you're aware that Turkey has sent over a thousand ground troops uh, into Lebanon uh, to operate as part of the UN peacekeeping forces. The Germans have sent a thousand uh, 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 Navy officers uh, working on ships off the Lebanon coast, uh, to, uh, presumably to keep peace. Uh, now, that doesn't mean anything yet, but it's interesting because the Russians, for example, haven't had boots on the ground 
in Lebanon in over 220 years. The Turks haven't had troops on the ground uh, in, in Lebanon on the borders of Israel since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire almost 100 years ago. So what's going on? Well, we don't know yet. And I think that we risk uh, discrediting ourselves and, and, and bringing shame upon the scriptures if we try to overreach and shoehorn every headline in, into Bible prophecy. But given the fact that Ezekiel 36 and 37 have come true in our lifetime, and because of these events, I think we can't rule out the possibility that this thing could play out in our lifetime. And this just raises uh, some of the most important questions of all. And that is, what does this mean for us? How am I going to live my life differently because I'm living in the last days? You know, I would ask it to you this way. You know, if you're here tonight as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're listening to me uh, on this broadcast, and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're planning any major sins in your life right now, could I, could I recommend that maybe you postpone those or maybe just cancel those outright, okay? This is not a good time to be goofing around. Uh, this is not a good time in your life to be uh, living with uh, sin uh, in your heart, in your head, in your, in your lifestyle. This is not a good time to be doing things or thinking things or seeing things or reading things that you will be ashamed when Jesus sees you face to face. Can I tell you that Jesus is going to see you tonight or tomorrow or next week or next year? I can't. But it wouldn't shock me. I believe he's saying, hey, it's close. And I don't want to feel ashamed when I see Jesus. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter rather says it this way in, uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3. He's saying, yes, in the last days... There will be mockers. There will be people who don't believe that Jesus is coming back. And they'll say, hey, where's, where's the coming of this Messiah that you talk about? But anybody, then he talks about the judgments that are coming. And he says in verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, look, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And then he talks about how we should live with holy conduct and godliness. He says in verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, for the coming of Jesus, for the rapture, when he takes his church away to be with him forever and ever, when you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and he says it so gently. Now little children, abide in him, in Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Are you living a life that's worthy of Jesus Christ? Are you living a life that's reading the scriptures and spending time on your knees talking to the, the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you and wants to abide in you? Are you spending time with other believers who encourage you you're not just you're hanging out with believers, but that are encouraging in your faith, that are challenging you at times, uh, are, 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 that you're open to, to letting them tell you when there's things in your life that they, they don't, that they're not encouraged by, that they're worried that you may be going off in the wrong track. Are you, are you putting yourself in that type of context? Are you living a holy life? And not just holy. Are you living a life of impact? You know, Jesus said in, in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Are you leading your family members into the kingdom of God? Your friends, your neighbors, 
your community. Yes, as a church, you're making a huge impact, but Jesus isn't going to grade on the church side. He's going to grade each one of us individually. He's going to put our our works through a a conveyor belt, as it were, and and it's going to burn up. And only that which comes through, which was the thing that he wanted you to be doing, will come out on the other side. Everything else will get burned up. And the question is, if we've got unsaved loved ones, what are we doing to reach them with the love of Jesus Christ? And our neighbors and our family members and our friends. And not just our country and our community, but the nations of the world. The nations of the epicenter. This is very personal for Lynn and myself. I'm a Jewish believer in Jesus. And I have a, I have a passion for touching the lives of, of Jewish people and particularly those in Israel with the love of our Messiah, to bless them and care for them. Uh, Lynn and I have started a new organization called the Joshua Fund. I describe it in the last chapter of Epicenter, uh, and it's on uh, at, at joshuafund.net if you want more information. But this is just one of our, this is our way of, of trying to make a difference. The mission statement is to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, according to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If you bless Israel, I will bless you. If you curse Israel, I will curse you. We, we, and because of this recent war, we are working on raising over a million dollars to bring humanitarian relief into the Israelis who were devastated by this recent war. Working in partnership with the Israeli government, but also with local believers, the local churches, Jewish believers in Jesus. We want to strengthen them, encourage them, help allow them to distribute this aid as we who have much provide them who have little. This is how the body of Christ operates. This is how Jesus is glorified when he, they see that we have love for one another. But we can't. But, but Lynn and I look at the scripture and we say, even, even as our heart goes out to the Jewish people to bless them in the name of Jesus, we can't stop there. Jesus said, love your neighbor and love your enemy. In Matthew 15, where was Jesus? He was in southern Lebanon. He was in Tyre, in Sidon, the very cities that were part of this horrifying recent war. And, the, and a woman was begging Jesus for mercy. And Jesus responded. Because that's who our Messiah is. He's a, he's a God who doesn't just say, hey, go love your neighbor and your enemy. He, he, he practiced what he preached. He never told us to do something that he wouldn't do himself. And we, can't, we have to love the people of Lebanon. And the people of the West Bank and Gaza. These Palestinians that are caught in the crossfire. These, the, 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 the believers in the West Bank and Gaza are under great persecution, great suffering, uh, in the crossfire of radical Islam on one side, uh, a corrupt government on the other side, and Israel all around them. Now you can get, you know, I have different views with many of my Palestinian Christian friends about the politics and even the scriptures in terms of what, whose land is it. But in a sense, that's irrelevant. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we've got to strengthen our brothers in the West Bank and Gaza. We've got to support them and encourage them and help them with even basic needs. What did Jesus say in Matthew 25 after talking about the last days? He said, hey, when you were naked, when I, when I was naked, you came and clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And, he's, you know, and of course, the, parable, the story goes, well, when did we do these things? When you did these things for the least of my brothers? Well, certainly he meant Jewish people. Those were his brothers. But in Christ, we are brothers and sisters with the Palestinian believers. 
with the Lebanese followers of Christ and with those in Iraq and those in Iran. More Muslims are coming to Christ today than at any other time in human history. It's another evidence of the last days. And in the Q&A time, we can take some time to talk about some of the specifics of the amazing story of what God is doing to draw more Jews and more Muslims into his kingdom, into his family than any other time. But this is just one way that we're doing this. I leave on Wednesday for a project in Israel. We're working, again, with, a local, uh, with the Israeli government and local believers to bring in over a quarter of a million dollars worth of relief to Kiryat Shmona, a town on the northern border between Israel and Lebanon, a town that was hit with a thousand rockets and missiles. But this is just one way. This may be a way that you want to get involved, uh, but there are many ways to get involved in blessing the people of Israel and, and her neighbors with the love of Christ. The question is, what is God asking you to do? And I don't have that answer. You need to spend some time and say, Lord, what is my unique place in all this? Because I say for myself, I don't want to see Jesus one day face to face and have him say, Joel, I'm really glad that whole thing with the novels worked out. That was wonderful. But what part of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, what part of that did you not understand, son? I mean, was it in Greek? Or actually it was, but you know, you had all those translations. There's really no excuse. I don't want Jesus to be ashamed at me. I want to hear from his lips what I think you want to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, if you're here tonight or listening and you are not, and you're here as a participant, as a spectator, as somebody, but you're not sure if you've ever made a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're not sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that if you were to die tonight, walking out in the parking lot here, or, get, or, or walking out of the embassy in Baghdad, or on the streets of Jerusalem, or wherever you may be, if you don't know if, if you were at a doctor's office tomorrow and you were diagnosed with a terminal illness, if you don't know for sure that you would spend eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity tonight to pray and receive Christ. And, and, and not just for eternal security, although that's, you know, we have an expression in, in Hebrew, dayenu, this alone would be enough. But Jesus promises peace that passes understanding. He promises hope that is an anchor for our soul. Wisdom that only can come from God, guiding you through the tough times in your life. Jesus is reaching out to you tonight. He wants you to give your life to him. He wants to take you on the greatest adventure that you can possibly imagine because he loves you. And when, and we, when we finish the Q&A time, we're going to close with an opportunity for you to pray and, and give that, your, your, your heart to Christ. And I want to encourage you to be thinking about these things and wrestling this through because I hope tonight is the night because we don't know what the rest of the night holds. We don't know what tomorrow holds. But we know we are living in the last days and the time is short. God bless you, and I'd be happy to answer your questions. Thank you. We have microphones that will be circulating throughout the audience. This would be a good time to let you know, if you don't already, that Thursday night downtown at the Kiva Auditorium is a citywide uh, evening uh, where the churches of the city get together to honor Israel. And uh, we have a few tickets left in the foyer. They're $5 each. All of those funds will go directly to those in Israel. Um, as you're thinking of a question, we have 30 minutes, and we want to stick to our time because Joel's been speaking around uh, a lot lately. But uh, I want to start with one, Joel, if you don't mind. Sir. Um, you have, I believe, 
met with at least one, maybe more, Islamic leaders regarding your writings that they have found intriguing. Would you tell us a little bit about how that went? Sure, sure. I appreciate it. Well, it's interesting because there have been Israeli leaders that have said, hey, I'd like to get a cup of coffee and talk about these things. Members of Congress of both parties, I went up and did a Bible study with them, and they were curious about why these novels kept coming true. And I said they were based on the Bible, and I described Ezekiel 38 just briefly. And this one congressman said, I've never heard of that. You're telling me that Russia and Iran are going to form an alliance in the last days? And I said, yes. And he said, could we actually open up a Bible and go through that together? And I'm thinking to myself, do they even have Bibles on Capitol Hill? Haven't they outlawed those already? But they did, and we went through it. In fact, it was a little strange. I'd never led a Bible study of such illustrious people. People you would know, but I'm not allowed to say who they were. I'm going to get into the Islamists in a second. But it was interesting because I thought, well, while I've never led a Bible study of people like this, it does feel a little bit like the young couples in my wife's and my home when we have Bible studies. So I said, well, sir, why don't we all open up to Ezekiel 38, and I'll read the first five verses, and Mr. Congressman, you can read the next five, and we'll just work our way around. And it was fascinating. So this is happening at a lot of levels. But, yes, two examples come to mind. One is in the spring I was contacted by a gentleman who works with uh, an Arab Muslim leader uh, from a Middle Eastern country uh, who had uh, read a copy of the Ezekiel option, or somebody had given it to him, and he was intrigued, and he, and he was coming to Washington, and he wanted to sit, see if he could sit down and have dinner. And, uh, and so we did. We, uh, we had just had Passover in our house uh, a little bit earlier, and, and now a couple days later we were having dinner with him. And it was interesting because he had questions. He said, you know, Ahmadinejad is a Shiite Muslim. Uh, we're Sunnis. Uh, their end of the world scenario, their Shiite eschatology, is much different from our eschatology, our end times theology. I'm curious, though. Uh, well, first of all, Ahmadinejad is freaking us all out. And I'm curious, what does the Bible say about the last days? What, what, are, what do Christians believe about this? And we had a fascinating opportunity to have this conversation. Um, and, uh, and then there was another one. Um, I had the privilege of attending the, uh, the speech to the joint session of Congress by the Prime Minister of Iraq, uh, Maliki. And, uh, you know, again, Dayenu, you just get to go to the speech and hear the first democratically elected Iraqi leader ever to address a joint session of Congress. So that was enough. But that afternoon, I got a phone call from an assistant to a senior advisor to the Prime Minister saying, we've heard that you write books that come true. And uh, we understand that you something about the Bible. They didn't quite have the whole story, but they said, could, "Could you would you be willing to have the breakfast with this senior advisor to the prime minister and talk about the future of Iraq from from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective?" So we thought, "Well, no, we're a little busy. Now that doesn't sound no. You know, we you know clear the schedule, have this you know have breakfast with this guy." And it was fascinating to talk with people who you know he didn't believe what I believed. These congressmen didn't all believe what I believe. But we're getting them into the scriptures and getting them to think that there is a God who is relevant to their lives. And, and not only that, but who loves them Beautiful. and have a plan for their lives and their countries. Beautiful. Looking for the hand to go up so we can do a question. Right over here. Yes, ma'am. If you're going to have a question, uh, you may want to just find the nearest moderator and get right to that moderator. It may be a little bit easier to facilitate. Yes. 
Uh, Pastor Skip's been teaching us in Matthew 24 about the difference between the rapture and the second return of Christ. And you mentioned three things as in the days of Noah, which I truly believe it's your son, that part of the prophecy. Really do. And, and also the, the gathering of the figs, uh, which you stated, I believe, was Israel, the, the Jewish believers. And uh, then the, the, last, the nation of Israel. The nation yeah. of Israel, yeah. And then the last part in Ezekiel 39, that, that he poured out his spirit. Which, it, do you think, the, yeah. I'm sorry, do you think the attack will be before the rapture or, or after, seeing as how probably a lot of Jewish believers will come, I mean, will come at that time? You know, it's a great question about, you know, the timing of all this. And the only clue that the scriptures give us is that it will happen in the last days, which uh, helps to a degree, but doesn't help so much in terms of timing. I I really have absolutely no idea. I'm learning to say that in the context of prophecy, uh, that you should just say sometimes, "I I don't know. Because I think if you try to act like you know... And you probably don't, so then you're going to end up looking like an idiot. And, um, you know, I've had enough of that in my life, so, you know, I work in Washington, people, uh, you know. So, uh, I don't know, but I think there's an interesting case, uh, not that the Lord needs it, but, uh, but for, there's a case for us to consider this happening before the rapture. Since we don't know one way or the other, uh, you know, because this strikes me as the type of event that God might do before he takes the church away, uh, as one huge cataclysmic moment to say, Hello, people. I am the Lord. You know, like, uh, you know, Bill Cosby and Noah. <laughs> Noah. You know, uh, I am the Lord. I think the Lord is very jealous for his name, and I don't think he wants... I, I know he doesn't want billions of people to suffer through the, through the tribulation. I, I think he might very well do this, uh, set into motion this event on this side of the rapture that we would see in part so that millions of people would come to Christ, so that, um, so that after the rapture, people will say, you know what, those people that followed Christ after that whole war of Gog and Magog thing, they must have been right. I don't know that for sure. Um, and I can't say that I am looking forward to the war of Gog and Magog because of the suffering, uh, even of our enemies. But, you know, this is a storm warning. This is a weather report from the future. Uh, this is, you know, this is the Lord saying, "Hey, Katrina's coming. Don't be the mayor of New Orleans. <laughs> you know, you don't want to leave the buses in the in the in the, in the parking lots. You got to get people to safety. You don't know exactly when that storm's going to hit ground, but you know it's coming. So what are you going to do? Just sit there? Just get yourself out? No, you got to rescue your neighbors and you got to get them to safety. And safety is found in the name of Jesus. And uh, I think this is the urgent moment, again, because we don't know certain things, but what we do know has to compel us to action. I was interested in your opinion on something. Not too long ago, we invaded Iraq, and we were able to overthrow Saddam Hussein, and we now have him, of course, as prisoner. One of the problems that we now face is that Iraq has disintegrated into its core components, be it the Shiites and the Sunnis and so forth. Um, We're having a very difficult time in Iraq with that situation. The Democrats seem to want to withdraw from Iraq. I believe that would be a mistake. However, there has not been a real plan that has been offered by either party as to how we can get this situation resolved. I was wondering if you had any ideas you would care to share. Well, with the caveat that I've gone through political detox, and uh, I'm not here to be partisan tonight, 
I would say several things. First and foremost um, is that we can't, we must not do anything that signals to our forces, our brave men and women on the front line, that we're going to cut and run on them. We, we, we absolutely cannot do this. The stakes are too high for them, and this only emboldens Iran and Syria and Lebanon and these other countries, the radical jihadist forces. If they see us leave, it will be very similar to what happens in Somalia, where we left, we didn't finish the job, and that sent into motion, set into motion people like Osama bin Laden, who said, apparently it's open season on Americans. I believe we have to win over there so that we don't have to fight jihadists on our streets every day. Now, that... Now, that being said, I think there are two tracks that we as followers of Christ have to think on. One is a public policy track, and there is going to be a, 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 it's an important and a, and a useful and a, and, uh, and, a, and a welcome debate about how do we win this thing, and at what point do we hand over the reins uh, um, of power and, and, and security to the Iraqis, okay? That's, that's where we're trying to get to. That's one track. That's the policy track. But there's another track, and that's the mission of the church. Win, lose, draw, years from now we're still there or just a few months, the mission of the church will continue in Iraq and we have to strengthen those Iraqi believers that are coming to Christ in record numbers right now. Record numbers. I had dinner with an Iraqi pastor uh, not long ago. I interviewed him for Epicenter. I was in a Middle Eastern country. It wasn't Iraq. Uh, I can't say which country this is, but I was sitting with this pastor and I said, uh, well, first of all, I said, uh, uh, you're a pastor in Baghdad of the largest evangelical church in Baghdad. What are you seeing happen? And he said, people coming to Christ in record number, Joel. Joel, there, there's, been over four, there's been 14 new evangelical churches planted in the Baghdad area just since the end of major combat operations. Some of these churches are 500 to 1,000 people in size. It's amazing. And he said, when you look at the country of Iraq... You, Joel, I would implore you uh, to encourage people in the West to look at Iraq just as, uh, as from Daniel chapter 2, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, uh, at that time, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar you know, made the fires, the fiery furnaces, seven times hotter. And he was throwing those three men, those followers of the Lord, into those fires. It was seven times hotter. He said, Joel, the situation in Iraq to be brutally candid with you, is seven times hotter than it was when Saddam was here. It was bad then. Right now, it's a free-for-all. So what you're looking at from the outside, the bloodshed, the violence, the evil, the horror, the terror, that's all real. He said, but what did Nebuchadnezzar see when he looked into the fires? He didn't see three men. He saw four. One of them looked like the son of the gods. He said, from the outside, it's horrible. From the inside, it's horrible. But Jesus is in their fire with us. He is walking with us, and uh, he says, I, we are seeing Shiites come to Christ in record numbers. And he goes, I, I, I've talked to all the pastors in the country. I don't know any of us who believe that we have led these Shiites into the kingdom. They are seeing dreams and visions of Jesus, and they are walking into our door saying, I already believe in Jesus. What do I do now?
So, so I think that's the question, is how do we strengthen our brothers? How do we encourage them? How do we support them? The Joshua Fund is just one element of that. But we, we can't simply look at the political lenses right now. Uh, one of the points I make in Epicenter is that if you only look at the world through political lenses or economic lenses, you're not going to be able to see in three dimensions. We need to be looking through the third lens of Scripture that begins to put into context what is happening. And I believe that uh, while we have a public policy function, we've got to remember that our mission as followers of Christ is to build the church because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Joel, I heard you on the radio the other night or the other day, and uh, you were talking about some uh, oil issues in uh, Israel and, mm. and how they fit, fit, fit in biblically. And I just wanted you to share that with these people. And sure, on that sure I appreciate could. that. And there's a chapter in the book about in Epicenter about uh, how oil will be, and gas will be discovered in Israel in the last days. Now, in the last jihad and the last days, fictionally, my characters discover large amounts of oil and gas, and it sets into motion a whole series of events. I was just making this up, okay? This was pure fiction. Then I'm at a book signing about 18 months ago, and a guy comes up to me and says, I read The Last Jihad on a flight to Israel, and I thought, oh my gosh, this isn't fiction. This is our company. There are companies working in Israel right now, petroleum companies, that have found oil. There's, a, there's an Orthodox Jewish company that has, that's drilling in central Israel right now that has discovered over a billion barrels of oil in central Israel. What they're trying to figure out now is because of the, the density of the rock. Believe me, I'm not a petroleum engineer. I don't, but they're, they're trying to figure out what's the angle they can get into that oil and get it out that's commercially viable. Uh, now, there's a, now this guy happened to be an investor in a, uh, and that's the company. I don't have investments in any of these, so you know, I'm not. So just full disclaimer, I actually don't. Um, I'm not involved in this stuff. But just so you know, so Givat Olam is the Jewish company. The evangelical company is called Zion Oil. They're based in northern Israel. They've got 219,000 acres in northern Israel, and they're convinced they've just found a huge oil strike as well, having the same difficulties. How would we get this oil out? I had I had uh, lunch with the CEO of that company. And I said, now, where exactly is this territory that you're drilling in? He said, well, that would be around the area of Megiddo. I said, well, now, wait a minute. You're telling me you think you found massive amounts of oil at Armageddon? And he said, yeah, I think we have. Now, what's interesting about it is both these companies, the evangelical company and the Jewish company, are both convinced that it's the Jewish scriptures themselves in Deuteronomy, in Genesis, uh, um, in Numbers, that, where, that they are guiding them to the oil, that describe how in the last days Israel will discover oil. And it's fascinating, and I, and I tell that story in, in, in nonfiction terms uh, in Epicenter. It's, it's amazing. I believe it's going to happen. I don't know exactly when. I wonder sometimes if this earthquake that's epicentered in Israel would change the whole uh, rock structure and might allow the oil to be released at that time. Uh, but I don't know for sure. It could happen before then. We don't know. Joel, I want to thank you so much for coming tonight. I've been looking for this uh, night for a long time with uh, my friends and I and uh, thoroughly enjoyed listening to you on the radio as well. Thank you. Um, I've got a million questions, and so I better just pick one here. And in your uh, book, you talk about Israel being the home of million, millionaires, about 6,600 millionaires there. Um, I guess that's the... The, the oil uh, certainly hasn't hurt it there. But I, my, my real question, I guess, is about uh, Vladimir Putin and the Islamic Initiative, uh, or how much to be either more afraid, and I'm, 
I don't want to say afraid because we're not afraid in Christ, but more concerned if, if I'm in Israel and I'm at the epicenter in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount and I want to know uh, about what the, uh, the mindset of Vladimir Putin and the mindset of Aminijab, who am I going to be more afraid of? Or is it, or, I mean, not afraid it's, it's of. Awesome. <laughs> how am I going to mount an offensive, you know? Yeah. Um, well... Well, I, I guess, you know, even in a spiritual, on, on a spiritual plane, on a, a political plane, on a, um, uh, you know, a social uh, plane, what, if Vladimir Putin isn't the Antichrist, then is uh, Aminijab, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mixed question, but could you speak to the, the, uh, the interplay between uh, Russia, especially, and Aminijab? Okay. Sure. Uh, well, first let me uh, address the, the Antichrist issue. Uh, uh, Gog, that, that whoever that person is, is not the Antichrist. Um, there are certain uh, characteristics of the Antichrist that I believe are, are defined in Scripture. I know it's open for interpretation. I personally don't believe the Antichrist will be revealed until after uh, the rapture. Uh, so, I, I, you know, but, but that doesn't mean that the spirit of Antichrist, little a, uh, isn't operational that we are seeing, you know, because you know, a pastor once told me, you know, Jesus said that nobody knows the day or hour that Jesus is coming back. That means Satan doesn't know either. So in every generation, at every moment, he has to have evil dictators, you know, on call, 24/7, ready to go. Okay, and he seems to have done that throughout history. I think you can make a case that there's been a number of antichrists, small a, out there. Certainly, Hitler was one, and 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 Stalin was one, and. Uh, Ahmadinejad is certainly uh, one. I mean, uh, and I and and I think, I think Putin is is sending him setting himself into motion as to, uh, really being uh, rebuilding the evil empire, and I think that's what's so dangerous. Uh, and I think that it, uh, you know, uh, the relationship between Russia and Iran is not a casual thing. It's not like well, we accidentally sent a billion dollars worth of missiles to Iran. This is not, oh, you know, oh, I see the whole world is worried about, you know, Iran going nuclear. So, you know, I guess we should build more nuclear facilities in Iran. I mean, this is willful. And uh, what's interesting is right now, Ahmadinejad is, is most clearly the most dangerous guy out there. Uh, but what's interesting is scripturally, the leader of Russia will be the most dangerous person when this thing sets into motion. And it says uh, in Ezekiel 38... Verse 7, God says to Gog, be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. And that issue of being prepared, uh, that means building alliances, building up your military forces. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, again, not, I don't want to reach too far, but just as, as you begin to wonder the, the, the things that you're seeing in the real world and you match this, you say, well, the, Israel, uh, the uh, Russian military advisors that have been in Lebanon for the last few weeks are, are specialists, and most of them are engineers, and they've been rebuilding the bridges so you can connect the roads in the north of Israel uh, to, the, down to the, the north of Lebanon down towards the borders of Israel. Well, of course, you would need those bridges in place if you were going to launch another invasion. Now, obviously, you have to build the bridges. No one can come around and say, hey, you shouldn't build bridges because don't you know the war of Gog and Magog is coming? But it's just interesting to watch Putin and to, and to try to understand. You know, I don't know if he's Gog. I, I don't think anyone can, can, can make that case at this point, not convincingly to me. Is he Gog-esque? Yes, he is. The things that he's doing are consistent with setting into motion 
these events. But, but more, much more would have to happen. And he may just be setting up you know, uh, another leader after him or, or several down the road. Last point on that is I, I write in the book uh, about how in 1967 and in 1973 how close the Soviets came to sending ground forces into Israel in the 67 and 73 wars to overrun Israel, to take it over. And I draw on previously classified documents from the White House, the State Department, uh, and, and, and the CIA. And it's really incredible how close the Soviets came to a full-scale invasion of Israel, twice. And they didn't. But if you were a Bible, if you were a pastor or you were writing these type of things at that point, you would have come very, very close to thinking, man, this has got to be it. But you know what? God took that moment that looked so close, and then he kicked the can up the road. Twice. And I, I describe another time in 1982, where when Israel invaded Lebanon, they found huge tunnels filled with Soviet weaponry, enough for ten divisions. Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister of Israel, I quote him in the book, and he said, the only reason for this amount of equipment was to take over Israel and take over the entire Middle East. And, he, and he, Menachem Begin believed he had averted a Soviet invasion of Israel in the Middle East. Now again, if you, were, if you had enough information at that moment to say, this has got to be it. But then God kicked the can up the road. It's been 24 years. So I just want to caution people, the urgency of getting the gospel remains. The urgency of figuring out every detail of the prophecy is not there. We watch it, we examine it, we test it. But there is work to be done even right now. Um, and, it's, and that is really urgent, the souls in the, of the people in these countries. Okay, we have time. Great. We have time for two quick questions before we let Joel close up, and then he'll be signing books in the foyer, please. Um, Joel, in, in light of the um, extreme polarization politically in this country right now, right and left and so forth. Um, what would you have to say, uh, like with the upcoming elections, what would you have to say about the perceived alliance between the far radical left-wing elements in this country and radical Islam? In other words, there's people on the far left that would like to see us lose the battle on terror, the war on terror. Do you have anything to say about that? Well, again, I, I'm pretty cautious about that. Not because I don't have strong opinions. Uh, I did work for Rush Limbaugh, after all. Uh, <laughs> but because he's so much better at talking about it than I am, <laughs> as is Sean. And, I, you know, look, when I'm out on the radio shows, uh, I do uh, sometimes um, get dangerously close to that line of talking because we're so close to an election that I think the stakes are incredibly high. Incredibly high. Uh, but in, in the context of being in a church and talking about the gospel tonight, I, I don't feel comfortable in drawing those type of uh, an, analogies. And I, and I appreciate it. Well... And I, and I think that I don't, I personally don't like to ascribe motives to people that, you know, that a person from a, uh, the far left or the far right, you know, is, is really essentially committing an act of treason uh, to help, you know, Ahmadinejad, uh, you know, or, or whomever. But I think that, uh, I, I think that, I feel like my purpose is now, while I'm dealing in the geopolitical world, it's not a partisan world. I need Democrat congressmen and Democrats uh, all over the country, as well as Republicans, look, uh, all the whole spectrum, to begin thinking about God. That's what I want. I want them to know Jesus, and I want them to think the Bible is relevant to their lives. And, 
Thank you for your very wide range of experiences and insights. And uh, I have a question. Some Christians uh, throughout the world, really, have expressed concern that Israel has violated human rights and international law in the uh, bombing of Lebanon and in the occupied territories. Do you have an interpretation uh, from Scripture that Israel's actions might be perceived this way as violations of international law in the end times? Thank you. Uh, well, I appreciate the question. I, I, you know, um, Israel has made a lot of mistakes over the years. I mean, buckets of them. And they're going to keep making mistakes. And, um, uh, you know, uh, I would say that, uh, you know, I, I personally believe, just looking at the facts, uh, that uh, it was Israeli soldiers that were kidnapped and killed. When Israel tried to defend herself, uh, they received 4,000 rockets and missiles. And this is after Israel withdrew from southern Lebanon. It's not, Israel wasn't occupying one square inch of Lebanon since the, the spring of 2000. And yet this war came. And look, I mean, obviously people say, well, you worked for Netanyahu and you, you, know, you have certain political views. And that, obviously, you know, that's, that's fair to say. I, I think, look, I think as evangelicals, you know, we want to bless Israel and we want to bless Lebanon. We want to bless the Palestinians. We want, but, but by blessing, providing unconditional love to people in the name of Jesus is unconditional. Now, you can certainly and should be at times concerned, outspoken. Sometimes that's behind the scenes with leaders. That sometimes that's public about their actions, especially when they're just blatantly wrong. Uh, but, but we have to be careful as, as evangelicals to make sure that we're communicating unconditional love to the people of Israel but also to the people of Lebanon and to the people of the West Bank and Gaza. We don't have political objectives there. We have spiritual objectives. And only because when the Holy Spirit changes our lives could we possibly love our enemies. It's impossible any other way. And I might, if I could, just wrap up with this story and then we'll give you an opportunity to make a decision for Christ tonight. But I, I was having dinner about a year and a half ago. I, I tell this story in Epicenter, but... Well, I think it's a good story to close with tonight based on your question. I was having dinner with uh, Brother Andrew, uh, the, the famous uh, God smuggler who smuggled Bibles uh, into Eastern Europe, into the Soviet Union when, when there's the Iron Curtain. And to, why? But to strengthen the church. Obviously, he wanted the church to then reach out to people who didn't know the Lord, but he wanted to strengthen the church. And after the Soviet Union collapsed and the Berlin Wall fall and, and, uh, and, and, and much of that region was liberated, he turned his attention to the Muslim world. And one day he was, he was reading the newspapers and he noticed that Israel had just rounded up uh, several dozen uh, Hamas leaders and deported them to a hilltop in southern Lebanon. And there was all kinds of international outrage. This was a human rights abuse and all kinds of things. And I, I don't know the legalities of that specific incident. And I don't think he did either. But he said, you know what? Certain governments have to take certain positions, but I'm a, I'm a minister of the gospel, and I see a bunch of people that, uh, that many people would describe as my enemies. But Jesus told me to love my enemies. So these are men who need Jesus, and uh, I, I'm going to go and visit them. So he went and he brought some supplies and some, some blankets and some, you know, th some things. And, and these men were so touched they couldn't believe it. Now, he had a Dutch passport, not an American one. You know, Joel Rosenberg, I, you know, that I don't think would be my calling. But, um, <laughs> but he, he spent time with these Hamas leaders. And these Hamas leaders were shocked that this Christian leader would come and visit them. No one else from the Christian community had visited them. And they said, well, would, uh, he said, what do you need? 
Uh, he goes, I can't, I'm not a politician. I can't do anything for you. But, but if there's something I can help you with, I, I would be happy to do that in the name of Jesus. And they said, you know what we need? We would love to write some letters and send them back to our loved ones in Gaza and in the West Bank. Would you be willing to take these things back just to let our families know that we love them and, and how we're doing? He said, sure, I would be happy to do that. So he did that, and then he, he went to Gaza. You know, that's, that's a pretty scary thing, to, to go into the homes of Hamas leaders and say, here's an update. We were just here. We took some pictures of your husband, your brother, your father. Here they are, and here's some letters. And these, these women and children were moved to tears. And they sent notes back, and, uh, and these Hamas leaders on the next trip said, well, we need, uh, he said, what else do you need? He said, well, we're all professors. Uh, you know, the Israelis saw them as, 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 as provocateurs, uh, and they may very well have been, don't get me wrong, but uh, these guys were professors, and they said, we're really missing reading material. You know, we're just living in these tents on this barren hill. Could you bring us some books? So, uh, you know, a brother said, hmm, I know about bringing people books. Yes, I, I can do that. I, I. <laughs> so he brought, you know, Arabic Bibles. He brought, the, he brought God Smuggler. He brought a number of, of books for them to read. It was quite a little library they had developed. Well, when they eventually returned back to Israel after the international hue and cry, uh, some of these leaders contacted him and said, if you ever want to come to Gaza or the West Bank, I know that's all what you want to do, uh, uh, we would like to just have a little dinner for you and thank you for, for being so kind to us. So he made arrangements and he decided, yes, I will go to Gaza City and I will have a little dinner with Hamas leaders. So he gets there and they, uh, well, he's thinking it's going to be a little, you know, a dinner party. I don't know, 10, 15, 20 people. There are 400 Hamas leaders in a banquet hall. His first reaction is, where are the windows? I want to see the missiles when they're coming in from Israel to wipe us all out. Should I even walk into this building? Well, it got worse because when he got, there were no windows. Uh, when he got in there, the first thing they said is, well, we would like you to make some remarks and explain to the rest of our Hamas fellowship, as it were, uh, why you were so nice to us? What, what, what would motivate that type of love? And Brother Andrew faced another crisis. I mean, only the gospel of Jesus Christ constrains him, compels him to do this. But was he about to have an opportunity, and should he even accept it, to preach the gospel to Hamas? Would he leave the building? Even if the Israelis didn't get him, would he make it out alive? But he thought, you know what, if, even if I don't, this is the open door. That's the name of his ministry, Open Doors. This is the open door God has given me. And he began with part of his testimony and began to share with them what the love of Christ means from the scriptures and how they could experience it if they gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And not only did he live, but he was having lunch with me of all people, you know. Uh, and I said to him, Brother Andrew, I have to confess to you something. It has never dawned on me to pray for the leaders of Hamas, much less go and help them and visit them in any way. I, I, it never dawned on me. I am not sure if I'm the right person to do it, but I am ashamed to tell you that when Jesus told me to love my enemies, it didn't dawn on me to do it. And uh, this is the radical power of Jesus Christ. The question is, well, how are we different as followers of Christ? What, what makes us different? Of course people are our enemies, these jihadists. Yes, there's a public policy thing. We want the 82nd Airborne and the Rangers and everybody else to take these guys out, arrest them, do whatever they need to make sure they don't come here. But that's a public policy view, and it may be right. It is right. It is right. But, it, but it's not the same policy as the church, to build the church, to strengthen the church, to show people the love of Christ, even people who hate us. Isn't that what Jesus did? On the cross... Showing people the love of Jesus when they're killing him. 
the fact, the fact that angry sinners were killing him didn't say to Jesus, oh, well, this was ridiculous. I'm not doing this anymore. He said, this is why I'm doing this. Christ died for us because we were sinners, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of his. And I want to end with this opportunity to give you a chance to accept that love of Jesus Christ who died for you while you were yet an enemy of his. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.